We're in Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, would you also turn to 1 John chapter 1? We will look at both of those chapters. Jim has a Bible if you need a Bible. Romans chapter 8. I know some of you have been waiting for this. One of you has been reaching out on a regular basis, calling, texting. Is it this week? Are we there yet? <laughs> We're here. It's Romans 8. And, and what a great introduction to Romans 8. We are God's beloved, accepted in the beloved. That's Ephesians 1. That's not Romans 8, but it's very much the message of Romans 8. And especially the triumphant declaration that begins Romans 8. There is therefore, Romans 8.1. There is, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we've been waiting for this. For the last two chapters, Paul has been explaining and clarifying and amplifying. And now he's returning to his theme. He's back to the gospel. He's back to our salvation. If you recall, let's helicopter up for a moment. Paul spent the first four chapters building up to the gospel, our need for it, the purpose of it, the singularity of it, the lack of any alternative to it. He spent four chapters building up to the gospel. Finally, we get to chapter 5 where he declares it. Romans 5 verse 1 Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 11, not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That's the gospel, Paul says again and again, over and over. Different ways of saying the same thing in chapter 5. That's what the gospel says, that's what it does, that's what it means, that's what it is, that's how we're saved. That was chapter 5. Then we got to chapter 6 and 7, where Paul gives us a series of side notes. Several, and by the way, clarifications. Almost parenthetical expressions. Kind of like I might say, the Vikings are 5-1. and one. I'm not saying they're going to have a winning season. They were 5-1 and one in 2016, and they ended up 8-8. Eight and eight. The Vikings are 5-1. and one. I'm not saying they're going to win the Super Bowl. Vikings don't win Super Bowls. I'm not saying the Vikings are a good team. They've lost to the only good team they've played. I'm not saying that they're going to have a winning season, win a Super Bowl, or even be very good. What I'm saying is they're 5-1. and one. I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm not saying what I'm not saying. That's been Paul's last two chapters. Paul's telling us. The Vikings, no. The, Paul's telling us. <laughs> Paul's telling us we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that you should keep on sinning. That was chapter 6. I'm not saying that now we should go back under the law. That was the top of chapter 7. I'm not saying the law is bad. That was the bottom of chapter 7. I'm saying we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, now it's chapter 8, and now Paul is picking up where he left off. 
because we're saved by grace through faith, therefore, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus ever. Our sin has been washed away permanently. Now let's pause and observe the opposite is also true. The, the, the inverse is also true. There is condemnation, much condemnation, eternal condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. Paul built that case in excruciating detail back in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. Worth repeating, though. Worth you and I remembering. There's nothing but condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. And that's everyone who does not accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We've all sinned. We are all guilty under the law. And that guilt would have separated us from God who created us for all of eternity. Were it not for the cross. Were it not for Jesus trading places with us at the cross, exchanging our sin for his righteousness. And let's pause just for a moment so I can ask, have you taken Jesus up on that offer? Have you exchanged your sin for his righteousness? Have you said yes to the freedom and forgiveness Jesus purchased on the cross? It's available to everyone. It's not automatic for anyone. It's a free gift. But you have to say yes. You need to not only be willing to say, I need forgiveness. I've sinned. I've gone against God. I've done stuff for which I need to be forgiven. You not only need to be willing to say that, you need to be willing to repent and turn from the road you're on and ask for forgiveness. I went that way. It was bad. I'm sorry. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to follow you. Will you forgive me for that? And will you lead me in the way I should go? Believing, here's the third part, believing in Jesus Christ, that that's possible. Believing in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for anyone who calls on his name. Because there is. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, complete forgiveness of every sin. That's what we were singing about earlier. Jesus paid it all. I know we weren't singing that song, but... We were celebrating that fact. Jesus paid it all. When we do sing the song, that's what we sing. We don't sing, Jesus paid a little. We don't sing, Jesus covered most. We don't sing, Jesus paid almost all. No, Jesus paid it all. That's what's true. That's why we rejoice. We're forgiven of every sin we ever have sinned, ever will sin, ever are sinning. It's not the song we were singing. I get that. We were singing about the result, and that's just as good. Because we are forgiven, we can be. Because we're forgiven, we are accepted in the beloved. That idea, that theme, that's, that's why we sing every time that we sing. That's, that's always what we sing and why we sing. Because of what Jesus did. Because of what it means. Think about it. If, if our salvation were based on our works, we would have no reason to sing ever. No cause to praise. No basis to celebrate. If, if we sang at all, it would be a funeral dirge. Works didn't pay at all. My sacrifice was a bunch of fluff. My sin left a deep crimson stain. My works just weren't enough. 
Praise God, that's not our song. Praise God, because of Jesus, we sing another song. Because of Jesus, we sing with a different tone. We sing with joy. Because of Jesus, we sing like Peter and John and Paul and Silas, even in prison, even in adverse circumstances, even in the midst of storms. We sing because wherever we are, we're in Christ. And we always will be. Nothing can change that. Our sin has been wiped forever clean by Jesus' blood, blood shed by grace. So if all of that is true, okay, all of that is true. I'm not saying it isn't. Because all of that is true, all of that being true, here's a question. If all of that is true, why do we still need to confess sin If there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you and I are in Christ Jesus, justified by his blood, saved by grace through his sacrifice, freed from hell forever, if that's fact, incontrovertible, unchangeable fact, why do we still need to confess our sin to God? I mean, the Bible says we should. The Bible says we must. I've got a burden to, to, to pause. I know we're, we're not even one verse in. But I've got a burden to pause and talk about this this morning because it's something people get hung up on. And it's understandable why. The Holy Spirit says here in Romans 8 and elsewhere, I am now and forever forgiven. And I should go forward and live like I'm forgiven. F.F. F. Bruce Bible scholar that, that I respect and admire tremendously. Paraphrases, he, he translates but amplifies Romans 8.1 like this. There is no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal servitude. Servitude like you do when you're in jail. Should no longer continue on a chain gang as though they'd never been pardoned and liberated from the prison house of sin. We don't have to live like that anymore. But if that's true, why does the same Holy Spirit who says that in Romans 8 1 also say in John, sorry, 1 John 1 8, this is why I asked you to, to put a thumb there. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, verse 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. How are both of those true at the same time? Oh, that's easy, some people will tell you. it's because 1 John isn't written to us. No, John is speaking to a person who isn't a Christian. He's addressing someone who's never come to Christ, who hasn't been born again in Christ. That's a great theory. The problem is that it has no basis in reality. Read 1 John when you have time. I'm not going to unpack it this morning. Read it sometime in context. It's really clear. John is addressing believers. He's talking to you and me. He's talking to you and me in Christ Jesus, telling us, brothers and sisters who have been forgiven, saying to us, yeah, you need to confess your sin to be forgiven. So how do we reconcile that? Paul's writing to us, John's writing to us. 
John's telling us we need to confess so our sins can be forgiven. Paul's saying, hey, they already are forgiven. Is John wrong? Is Paul wrong? Are we wrong? They're both right. They're both right. How can I be sure? Jesus said so. How did Jesus teach us to pray? You and me, believers, Christ followers. Didn't Jesus instruct us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins? Obviously, John is onto something. John is pointing at something real. We can't just jump off the hook. But we still have a dilemma. Why? Why? Okay, Jesus says it. John says it. But why do we need to ask for forgiveness if, as Paul says, we are forgiven? And I guess it's a mystery. Becky, come on up. Let's, let's sing and go home. <laughs> no. We need to figure this out. We need to work this out. Because if we just stop and allow those two statements to stand next to each other in apparent contradiction, it diminishes both of them. It diminishes, on the one hand, the totality and the finality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but it also diminishes the urgency of daily confession in our lives. We need to figure this out. So how do we do that? How do we reconcile the tension between Paul saying we are forgiven and John saying we need to be forgiven? It's actually not as hard as it sounds. Let's, let's start the way that we started. Let's look back at Romans 8.1, Romans 5.1, because they're really reciprocal statements. Let's reaffirm in our mind what Paul is telling us in both verses. Our forgiveness is absolute. Not only do those two verses assert it, all of Scripture teaches it. This, this book is one giant salvation story. The guy started Hebrews last Monday. Jump in with them. Study Hebrews. Hebrews is a wonderful, wonderful book that declares again and again our eternal forgiveness. Hebrews 7.27. I'm going to go fast if you want to jot down the verse references and track them later. Hebrews 7.27, speaking of Jesus' sacrifice, says this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.26, now once at the end of ages he has appeared, he has come to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, one time for all. Hebrews 10.14, for by one offering he has perfected forever, forever and always, those who are being sanctified. Pick any book in the Bible, you can do the same thing. I grabbed Hebrews because the guys just started Hebrews. Pick any book in the Bible, you can do the same thing. The Bible is a salvation story. And at the end of the story, if we understand it, if we lay hold of it, we are forgiven of all of our sin. The Bible teaches it. On the cross, Jesus declared it. His next to last words on the cross, you know this, to Talistai. You know what he said, you know what it means. Paid in full. 
both an accounting term and a legal term. Go back to that F.F. Bruce amplification. There's no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal servitude as if they'd never been pardoned and liberated from the prison house of sin. We are forgiven. So, so let's take this forgiveness, this no condemnationness that Paul is talking about, this totalistai state that Jesus has declared. Let's call it judicial forgiveness. Judicial as in judge and jury and courts, because God is our judge. God is our judge, and we stand before him today legally forgiven legally not guilty. There's an echo of that idea in our court system even today. If I steal a bike and the police arrest James thinking it was him, and James is tried and convicted and found guilty and in prison of grand theft bicycle, <laughs> I can never be convicted of the same crime. I get off scot-free because someone has already been found guilty and punished in my place. Sorry, James. <laughs> but that's what happens at the cross. That's what happens at the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Write the verse down, check it out later. For now, just listen. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You, having sinned and having a sin nature, in other words, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, all sin, all crimes, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, the warrant sworn out, the indictment handed down, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Paul is saying God has declared us eternally not guilty. That's what Jesus did on the cross. At the cross, Jesus pronounced a verdict of not guilty for those who choose him. So if we call that category of forgiveness judicial, legal, penal, whatever, same thing. There's another category we have to consider. Let's call this one parental forgiveness. And here's how to parse the two. Let's say that you adopt a child. It's a helpful illustration because that's also something that happened on the cross, right? On the cross, Jesus justified it, but also God adopted us. Because of the cross today, we're children, adopted children of God. We talked about this a lot in Galatians. We'll talk about it more when we get to Romans 8, what is it, verse 16 where Paul talks about you and I being children of God. But, it, but it's a familiar concept, I think. So let's run with this. At the cross, God adopted us. At the cross, God did what adoptive parents do, found us, and paid the necessary fees to bring us home. Paid the price to have us. And now on the other side of that, nothing's going to change that. There's no going back. We're family forever. And as a parent, especially as an adoptive parent, you'd never want it any other way. As an adoptive parent, you're overjoyed that you finally, finally get to be legally joined with this child forever. Side note, pray for a friend of mine named Ben Eckel. He's a Calvary pastor in Michigan. 
Um, they've been fostering to adopt. They, they fostered to adopt one child. They've been fostering to adopt another. And at the last minute, literally at the last minute, um, a relative of the birth parents has jumped up and said, no, 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 uh, we, we, we want the child. No previous relationship, no previous connection. Um, yeah, pray, pray, pray for my brother Ben and his family because their hearts are breaking. They want to adopt this child. They have thought for them, of themselves for two years as this child's parents. That's the heart of an adoptive parent. And in Christ, we've been adopted by God forever. But that doesn't mean the relationship isn't going to have its ups and downs. Every father-child relationship does, right? Parents, isn't it true? The child that you love deeply, unconditionally, unhesitatingly, non-negotiably can still hurt you really, really bad. That child that you love like you didn't think it was possible to love anything can disappoint the snot out of you, can grieve you, can offend you. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. So if you agree that that's true, tell me if this isn't true. The more deeply you love someone, the more deeply you care about someone, the more you invest in someone's life, isn't it true, the more they're able to hurt you. Parents say amen. Shakespeare is just one of many, many, many writers to observe. The sharpest cuts of all, the deepest wounds there are come from our children. And we are God's children. We have, this seems strange, but we have the capacity to hurt God deeply. I've said a couple times recently, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. I've said that a couple times recently because it's true. He's our Father, our perfect Father. He's not flawed like me and other earthly fathers. There's nothing we can do to diminish his love for us, but that doesn't mean he loves everything we do. We can still disappoint him, offend him, grieve him. We do. We do still disappoint him, offend him, grieve him. And when we do, we damage our fellowship with him. Our bad behavior does damage. It gets in the way of us being us. The same way it does in human relationships. The exact same way it does in human relationships. I remember when Michaela was little. I asked her to clean her room. She was really little. We were still back in New Jersey. I asked her to clean her room. She says, will you take me to get ice cream if I do? Because, you know, there's the ice cream you keep in the freezer, and then there's ice cream. Will you take me to get ice cream if I do? Why don't you clean your room first, and we'll see. First, why don't you tell me what's in it for me, and we'll see. Or words to that effect. Okay, so now we're off to the races. <laughs> Here we go. I'd actually plan, the, the irony is, I'd planned to take her for ice cream. If I remember right, it was, it was let's go get ice cream, and then we'll go to the zoo. We were going to have a whole day. It was going to be a thing. <laughs> but now I couldn't. Because she wasn't asking, she was demanding. She was presuming. 
She was being a brat. <laughs> and now all of a sudden there's this wedge in our relationship that wasn't there when we got up that morning. That was my perspective. Ask her, if, if you could have asked her at the time, I was being monstrously unfair and unloving and in every respect an unreasonable ogre in her eyes. In my eyes, she was keeping me from loving her the way I wanted to. Because of her action, I couldn't bless her the way that I had planned to. Couldn't do it, wouldn't do it until her sin was dealt with. Now, the fact of the relationship was the same. The facts didn't change. She was still my daughter. I was still dad. That was written in stone. No one and nothing was going to change that. <clears throat> but the relationship we were having, our, our fellowship, if you were, was messed up. I couldn't bless her the way that I wanted to. <clears throat> and, and from her perspective, I wasn't loving her at all. <clears throat> The relationship wasn't broken. I didn't kick her out. She didn't run away. And even if she had, I'd still be her dad. The prodigal son didn't stop being a son. Dad just didn't have the opportunity to love the prodigal son while the son was off prodigaling. I didn't stop being dad. I was still feeding her, clothing her, protecting her, doing all the dad stuff. But neither one of us was enjoying it very much all of a sudden. Her sin had gotten between us. What needed to happen? Parents helped me out. I needed to apologize. There wasn't any question I was going to accept her apology. She was like four. Of course I'm going to accept her apology. I'm dad. Of course I'm going to accept her apology. That I would forgive her was a foregone conclusion. But she couldn't skip the step, right? She had to acknowledge her sin, confess her sin, confess that it was sin, that it was wrong, so that I could forgive her, so that we could get back to being okay. Full disclosure, because honesty demands it, in my relationship with my daughter, there were plenty of times when I was the one who needed to stop and ask for forgiveness. Plenty of times I needed to confess to her. God's a perfect father, me not so much. In my relationship with Michaela, plenty of times I was the one being a jerk. Still am sometimes a jerk. But in a relationship with God, it's always us. Even as believers, we sin against God. And if we don't do anything about it, if we just let it sit there, if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't confess it, our sin against God hurts our fellowship with God. And the longer we let it sit there, the longer we leave it unconfessed, unacknowledged, pretending it didn't happen or it wasn't a big deal, the longer it sits there, the more damage it does. Unconfessed sin is the hurt that keeps on hurting. The wedge that gets in the way of blessings that we'd otherwise receive, the, more, the longer that wedge is there, the more blessings we forego. But even worse, the more time passes, the more our friendship suffers, the more our worship suffers, the more our belief and confidence in the gospel suffers. Patrick, you're being dramatic. I'm really not. Unconfessed sin distorts our perception of God. How? Well, it distorts our perception of ourselves. Our sin isn't really sin. 
It wasn't really wrong. It wasn't that bad. I don't need to repent. Okay, once we, once we decide that that's true, what are we doing? We're elevating ourselves. We're esteeming our perspective, our opinion, our conduct. We're elevating ourselves and we're diminishing the cross. Because we're saying the sins that Jesus died for, our sins really weren't a big deal. But he already died for them. That's the voice of our rationalization. He already died for my sin. I already received forgiveness for my sin. So what's the point in confessing them again? In fact, wouldn't confessing my sins diminish what Jesus did at the cross? Wouldn't it say that it wasn't enough? No. And this is what we've got to lay hold of this morning. Confessing our sin doesn't diminish the cross. In fact, exactly the opposite. Confessing our sin celebrates the cross. Because when I say, I screwed up, I sinned, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'm acknowledging that because of the cross, I can. I'm declaring because of the cross, I get to. That sin isn't going to sit there forever. When I confess my sin, first, I'm agreeing with God that my sin is sin. Second, I'm agreeing with God, I did it. Sin is sin, and I sinned that sin. But third, I'm believing God that I'm forgiven for that sin. When I confess my sin, I'm not denying the cross. I'm celebrating the cross. I'm rejoicing in the grace that I found at the cross. I'm declaring Jesus freed me at the cross. My daughter and I figured out the other day, we're coming up on our sixth anniversary, six-year anniversary of the last knockdown, drag-out, no-holds-barred, take-no-prisoners fight that we had. January of 2017. Some of you were actually in the room. For years leading up to that, we had some memorable blowouts. Some of you were in the room for those. By memorable, I mean I'd really rather forget. Now that we haven't gotten tangled up since then, we have. But nothing like we used to. Because we finally figured out what was at the root of it. And what was at the root of it is that deep down we were both really afraid. We were scared. I was scared of screwing up as a dad and losing her. She was scared of messing up to the point that I wouldn't love her anymore. That there'd be a point of no return. A Rubicon she couldn't uncross. There was a lot of fear in that relationship. To the point where even when we'd reconcile, fear would still be in the middle of it. We'd reconcile because we were afraid not to. What finally broke the cycle is we, we, we recognized what was happening. The Lord showed us what was happening. And we decided to promise one another, and we decided to believe one another that we were going to love each other and forgive each other and not give up on each other no matter what. And that's what the cross does. At least that's what the cross is supposed to do. The cross is supposed to give us confidence, more than confidence, utter certainty that God not only loves us, but he will love us and keep on loving us 
no matter what. And, and when, we, when we realize that, and when we reach out and embrace that, it's a, it's a complete game changer. Because it transforms repentance, listen, it transforms repentance from a fearful thing to a joyful thing. It changes repentance from I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I don't to wow, it is so cool that I get to. Before the cross, when we messed up what we heard, the voice in our head, what we told ourselves, just wait till your father gets home. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, we get to say, wow, I messed up. I better call dad now. That, that idea, that, that line made the rounds in a meme a couple years ago. It doesn't keep it from being true. Not everything on the internet is wrong. In fact, in, in fact the more you stare at it, the better it gets. Take the idea out of a meme. Play it out as a conversation between two kids. Two kids, one kid's over at another kid's house. They're throwing the football around. They break dad's plasma TV. Oh, your dad's going to kill you. No, he's not. Yeah, you broke his TV. Okay, first of all, we broke the TV. <laughs> Second of all, yeah, he's not going to be happy, but it's going to be okay. How can he possibly know that? Because he's my dad. Hey, here's what we do. We clean it up so it doesn't look broken, and when he turns it on and it doesn't work, you just look like you don't know anything. And when, when he says, do you know anything, you just say, I, I, I have no idea. No, we're not going to do that. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Let's do this. Let's make it worse. Let's tear it off the wall. And, and let's kick in the front door and we'll tell your dad that, that someone was robbing the house and we came home and we scared him away, but it was too late for the TV. No, that's the only way that I could mess this up. The only way I could mess this up was by pretending that it didn't happen or pretending that it wasn't my fault or that it wasn't a big deal. That's what would hurt my relationship with my dad. How so? Because I'd be saying that I was afraid of him. I'd be saying I didn't trust him to forgive me. I'd be saying that I thought he cared more about the TV than me. No, telling him is actually going to be a good thing because I'll be showing him how much I trust and respect him and he'll get to remind me that he loves me way more than a TV. So that's us with God. And that's the gift of confession. And that's the treasure we miss out on when we don't take advantage of it. How does Jesus teach us to pray? What's the first line? Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father, forgive us our trespasses. Our Father, not your honor. God, our Father, not God our judge. God, we can confess to and know that the relationship is inviolable. God, that we confess to not to gain a relationship, but because we already have a relationship. He's our Father. We can tell Him anything. We confess our sin to God. We're not standing on the outside trying to get back in, we're standing on the inside. We're standing in the relationship 
trying to make the relationship that we have better. Put it another way. 1 John 1, 9, it's not about getting saved. It's about fully enjoying the fact that we are saved. It's about getting back to the relationship that we have with God because we're saved. So I want to take a few moments, and maybe more than a few moments, maybe a couple minutes, in the privacy of our own hearts, to take advantage of this tremendous gift and confess, to enjoy the privilege that we have to say, God, yeah, I broke the TV. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to search us and to show us. In, In more formal churches, high churches, liturgical churches. This is often a part of the order of worship, part of the order of service. It's time to do this. We don't always make it a a, a formal part of our Sunday morning. I think perhaps we we need to. Pausing and saying, Holy Spirit, do we we have unfinished business? Because we don't always know. David in Psalms said, God, search me, because I don't always know. God, what's the sin that I'm I'm concealing, that I'm denying, that I'm minimizing or rationalizing so so that I can confess it and we can get back to being okay? Because I want to be okay. I want to be really, truly, completely okay. Where have I sinned, God? How have I sinned? It's important to ask the question. Don't rely on your conscience. Our consciences can deceive us. Pol Pot responsible conservatively for the massacre of over a million uh, Cambodians, shortly before his death, weeks before his death, said, my conscience is clear. How could it be? Answer, his conscience was seared. Conscience isn't reliable. Conscience can be seared if we rub it and rub it and rub it and rub it, it can get calloused. And our conscience isn't very smart. It can be deceived. Confession isn't about how you feel about something anyway. It's not about how I feel about what I did or what I didn't do or said or didn't say. It's about the fact of it. The fact that it happened. And the fact I get to agree with God about it. And the fact that together with God, we get to move past it. It's not a shameful thing. It's a a joyful thing. It's a worship thing. It's a grateful thing. Jesus, we, we ask you, would you would you search us? In the privacy of your hearts, speak to us. And Father, we're grateful that you hear us as we acknowledge and agree, as we confess and repent as we reach out to you in love. Psalm 32, as Becky comes back up. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess 
my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Confession is not a shameful thing. We've got to disconnect ourselves from that idea. We've got to unplug from that concept. Confession is not a shameful thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a worship thing. It's a grateful thing. Like we said at the beginning of the message, it's the very reason that we sing. Let's praise our Lord now.